The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today I'm going to go on one of my rants. <laughs> At the headlines, those of you who have heard these um, know that it's long overdue. I'm going to be talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, from the sublime to the ridiculous, and everything in between. There is no shortage of headlines to rant at these days. Um, I'm going to start with the Golden Globe Awards. Uh, First... Let me, I'm sure many of you have watched it or certainly read about or heard about, you know, the winners and so on, although I'm going to mention that. Um, But in particular, I also want to talk about the speeches that were given. You know, it always boggles my mind. Uh, There were some good speeches um, and there were some awful speeches. And it always boggles my mind how people come up there and, of course, yes, they you know, no one knows for sure who is going to win. But if you are amongst the five or six or however many number in whatever number in your category nominees, you know that the chances are pretty good. And so it would be nice to have prepared a speech beforehand. I mean, it just, as I started to say, it just boggles my mind that some people get up there and they look so flabbergasted. I mean, yes, it's an incredible honor and all that, but they had a little clue that they might win. I mean, you know, they were nominated, um, and, and yet they don't prepare anything. And so since they are limited uh, to the amount of time they can have in an acceptance speech, they waste so much of it just sort of flubbing around trying to remember people to think. I mean, really? Um, it's, uh, yes, of course, the whole world is watching. I mean, there's everybody, you know, all the important people who you want to impress in Hollywood are sitting there, and then the whole world is watching, and yes, I get it. But at the same time, you know, especially for the people who are actors, they have to memorize whole scripts. They can't memorize a three or three minute or even less for some of the things. They can't memorize, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, they can't memorize a three-minute acceptance speech or less. So that, that you know, it, there's really no excuse for that. And then they wonder why the um, number of people who watch these award shows are down from the numbers that it used to be in years past. But anyhow, let me go into, I want to talk about some of the, the pictures who won and, and some of the speeches. Um, as you may know, the best motion picture in a drama was won by Moonlight, 
I actually have not seen Moonlight, so I can't really comment on that. Um, the best motion picture in a musical or comedy was La La Land, which I did see. I would recommend La La Land uh, to everybody, uh, to all of you, because it's really a very, it, it has a lot of different levels to it. And it's a, um, you know, it's first of all, it was a big risk to take, and it won, it swept the awards, the Golden Globes, and it is, um, uh, the I thinking is that it's probably going to, uh, if not sweep, then get a lot of awards at the Oscars as well. Um, it's, a, it's a really charming movie, and it was a risk because it was a musical. I mean, you know, it was taking the old genre of Hollywood musicals and putting it into the present day. And so there were a lot of cool things about it. And um, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm just going to tell you if you haven't seen it, see it. Because, hey, it's won the best picture. <laughs> um, also, the, uh, the award for... Best performance by an actor in a drama was Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea, which actually I think he deserves. I saw that movie. I do want to give you, I can't really give you as much of a, uh, a, a, an enthusiastic recommendation that you go see it, except for the acting, as I did for La La Land, because it is two hours of depression. <laughs> Please do not go to that movie if you are feeling slightly, even slightly depressed. It will put you into catatonia. That is a joke because, no, you cannot go into catatonia from seeing a movie. Or let's put it this way, it's very, very, very unlikely if, unless you have a predisposition to it genetically. But in any case, yes, his acting was amazing, um, but, but you have to kind of sit through a lot of depressing... It's, it's the movie... It, uh, it, it, it takes place in Manchester by the sea uh, it, on very gloomy days. I guess there are a lot of gloomy days in Manchester. And that is the tone of the movie. And, you know, yes, that was done on purpose, of course. But it really, even, even the, uh, the scenery the alone, the setting of it being in this gloomy town would be enough to depress you. But then, of course, all the things that happen add to it. Now, um, the Denzel Washington was, um, let me see, oh, I just, well, yeah, Denzel Washington was also nominated for um, the best performance by an actor in a drama for Fences, which I also saw, and Fences is a very good movie. It's very intense. He was very good. Um, he did not look very happy at the Golden Globes, however. Maybe he knew that he wasn't going to win. I don't know what was bothering him, but what was interesting at the Golden Globes was that whoever was, uh, well, it was more than one person, but whoever the people were, who were, whose job it was to do candid shots of the audience, I don't know. Either that person had an agenda to embarrass people, or he had had too much to drink, but um, he, there were so many times where when they did these candid shots in the audience, it was so embarrassing. People, um, people, well, like Denzel Washington, I was starting to say, looked really, they, shot, they flashed to him a number of times, and he did not look happy, 
at any of the times. I mean, it wasn't just when he didn't win for Best Actor. It was throughout the night. It was like something was bugging him throughout the night, and I don't know why we all had to keep seeing that, what the point was of that. But, um, and then other people, too. There were just uh, very awkward kinds of moments that were caught by the person or persons who were supposed to be uh, getting these candid shots. And I, I didn't really, I mean, were they trying to show us actors are human? It, it didn't really do anything to, um, to make the show more enjoyable. Uh, even the voyeuristic, you know, part of people, and that certainly we, everybody wants to see what, wants these candid shots to see what the people they are actually doing and so on, but they all seem so incredibly miserable. Not just Denzel Washington, but the whole crowd. In fact, afterwards, I saw an article written about that. Um, there were articles before wondering whether the uh, audience was going to be happy or excited or they, as they usually are or as drunk as they usually are, um, or whether sort of the gloom of, the, of this past year, and particularly all the arguments about the election, whether that was going to get to people, and so it was going to be a very gloomy... Uh, all they needed, actually, at the Golden Globes was this, the, um, the shots from uh, Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> they needed to superimpose that scenery, the dark clouds, the gray clouds, the, the ocean, you know, the whole nine yards of, of that uh, spot um, superimposed on the background of the Golden Globes, and it would have fit perfectly. And, um, and, and that was best illustrated by Denzel Washington. Then um, best actor for a musical or a comedy was won by Ryan Gosling, and he was great in La La Land. Oh, and let me go back to, um, to the best actress... Where was that? Oh, not back. I didn't. That was coming next. Okay, um, I do. I do want to mention the for as a nominee in best actor for musical or comedy was Colin Farrell, and for the Lobster. Now he did a great job in the Lobster. I saw that, but the Lobster was another movie that um, it was a very strange movie. You either loved it or hated it, and. Uh, I would not want to sit through it again, let's just put it that way. Um, it was very clever, like afterwards you can kind of appreciate the cleverness of it. It was making a point about society, about how hard it is these days to find love. And that was all very clever and good. Maybe it was just too long or something, or too drab in the settings, I don't know. But he was, his acting was good. And, um, and then Hugh Grant was nominated for Florence Foster Jenkins, um, and he was great. He was really great. I, I always love him. He could be in anything, and I would love him. Um, Florence Foster Jenkins was also nominated for Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, and, you know, the one that, um, that La La Land won. But um, it was, I loved Florence Foster Jenkins. It was a great, I, oh, you know, that, that was kind of a quiet movie. It didn't get quite as much um, attention as it should have, even though Meryl Streep was in it. I would definitely recommend that you go see that because um, it really is a great movie. Um, so for, for Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Emma Stone won that for La La Land. And I want to make the I want to talk to you about her acceptance speech. 
It, it, I think it was the best speech of the night. Now, Ryan Gosling made a lovely speech, too. It was very warm. Um, he dedicated the award to his wife and talked about the hard times that she was going through and that she took care of all of that so that he could go do the movie. It was, it was very touching. It was very sweet. <laughs> a lot of women would have wanted to, uh, to be his wife at that time, you know, to show it shows what a, what a caring husband he is. At least, uh, at least so it seems. Um, and then Emma Stone gave this incredible speech, the best speech of the night for her award speech. And clearly she had maybe not memorized, well, some of it she might have memorized word for word. But um, at the beginning, I mean, she was obviously really touched. Um, and what I loved about her speech w- was, well, first of all, she thanked her mother. She started off with that. And then she thanked her parents, and then she th- thanked her brother. She mentioned his name. She thanked her brother for putting up with her. Apparently, you know, her parents, it, it seemed like the whole family had really sacrificed a lot so that she could follow her dream and come to Los Angeles to be an actress. And she talked about being here for 13 years, and obviously, you know, she's been in things before, but this is the crowning glory of her career so far. And... um and she was incredibly grateful and touched and, and all of that. Um, and yet, it didn't stop her from making a coherent speech and talking about how the dream, the, um, the movie was about hopes and dreams and creativity and um, how uh, she talked about for those, she was dedicating her award to those who have ever had a door slammed in their face, either uh, metaphorically or physically, and uh, who or anyone who has waited for that callback call forever. And, of course, if you've seen the movie, you'll understand, or you did understand why she said this. And, and then her closing, her closing um, speech or comment was to never give up, never give up your dreams, never uh, you know, keep striving if you're an artist or a creative, want to be creative, you know, believe in creativity, all that kind of stuff, never give up on your dreams. And I'm not, again, I'm not going to ruin the end for you because I really want you to go see La La Land. Okay, so her speech was the best. And now I'm going to tell you whose speech I thought was the worst. And I know a lot of you are not going to be agreeing with me. But um, when you hear why, maybe you will. I think the worst the worst speech was by Meryl Streep. Yes, yes, indeed. And no, it's not just because I have been a Trump supporter. And yes, if you've been listening to this show during this past year, there is no question about that. Um, but it was, it was that her speech, Meryl Streep's speech um, for Florence Foster Jenkins, her speech was, she never mentioned Trump by name, but everybody knew who she was talking about. And um, first of all, it was mistaken in the allegations that she made. But not only that, um, it seemed as though she was really very subtly, but I think everyone got the point, <laughs> trying to rally people to be, um, to expect, to have to, to expect bad things from Trump, bad things to come. And um, let me read some of the speech. Um, first of all, she started off by saying, I've lost my voice in screaming and lamentation this weekend. And I think she was referring to 
the um, funerals um, for Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher, and uh, and I have lost my mind sometime earlier this year, and that she's referring to uh, to Trump and to Hillary having lost. She was a staunch Hillary su- supporter, so she said. So I have to read. Um, I mean, one was wondering why she she wore her glasses the whole time throughout the event, which seemed a little a little strange. She she did not look like the usual glamorous. She was wearing a glamorous dress. But between her hair and her glasses, she did not look like the usual Meryl Streep that we are used to seeing at award uh, ceremonies, award shows. And I guess it was a combination of, of you know, the, the funeral and, and being upset that her girl, Hillary, didn't win. So she started off, she, well, she, she was talk, talking about how she named some people. She said, I was born and raised and created in the public schools of New Jersey. And then she goes on to talk about where other actors were born and raised. Uh, Viola Davis was born in a sharecropper's cabin in South Carolina and grew up in Central Falls. She just went on and on. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. She named various actresses and um, and and people who um, and and where they came from. And, and she named people who came from various places all over the world. And she said her point was. Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. If you kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which are not the arts. Um, then she goes into a whole thing about actors and having to step into shoes of other people and so on. And, you know, obviously saying if you kick, kick them all out, you know, she's referring to Trump and what she you know, how she interprets his plans for immigration. Um, so then she said, she gets to kind of the point, there was one performance this year that stunned me. It sank its hooks in my heart, not because it was good. There was nothing good about it, but it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment where the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It kind of broke my heart when I saw it. I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. Now, she's talking to, um, she's talking about Trump's, you know, what Trump has been accused of, and of course he has, he has addressed this time and time again, that he was not making fun of the disability of the reporter. He was trying to say that what the reporter was saying wasn't accurate. And, um, you know, I, I will admit, <laughs> Trump sometimes does have awkward ways of saying things, but um, it was not to make fun of the disabled. But, and, and I'm sure, I am positive that Meryl Streep has read more than one account in the newspapers or heard it, or even heard Donald Trump or saw the tweets or something um, about his description of what that was, and yet she is totally ignoring that. And she, and she goes on to say, and this instinct to humiliate when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful, it filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Now, I totally agree with that, you know, how... Um, 
when it's when something humiliation or violence or anything like that is modeled by someone in the public platform, yes, it does affect us all. However, that is not what Trump did. Well, we need to take a break now, and um, we will come back. I'll talk more about the Golden Globes. I'll talk about this uh, case of um, in Florida where the deputies are covering over a murder, and I'll talk about the Fort Lauderdale gunman. And if there's time, there might be more. <laughs> All right, so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, Talking about, ranting about, as you can tell, ranting about headlines. And I've been talking so far about the Golden Globe mentioning about how Emma Stone's um, speech, acceptance speech, was the best, and how, how um, uh, Meryl Streep's was the worst. And I, I was just uh, reading some of it to you, and I just want to continue with, um, so she, this is the part where she uh, tries to get people to rally around the press and um, which is so ironic because the press has been so against, for the most part, except for a few out, uh, outlets, they've been so against Trump. But in any case, she said, this brings me to the press. We need the principled press to hold power to account, to call them on the carpet for every outrage. That's why our founders enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. Really? <laughs> then how come they were so biased? Um, wait, let me turn the page here. Um, so join, join me, she's asking the people, the audience, in the audience, to join me in supporting the committee to protect journalists, because we're going to need them going forward, and they'll need us to safeguard the truth. Well, I think they could start, should start with you, Meryl, um, with the truth about what you said about this uh, disabled reporter. Oh, it's just, you know, and I love Meryl Streep. I go to, anytime she's in a movie, I go to see it. 
she's a great actress, but uh, you know, this is what happens when actors, and I know she, she did a lot to support Hillary, so of course she's disappointed, I get that. But, you know, to take her, um, she, was, she was getting, she received the Cecil B. DeMille's um, Lifetime Achievement Award, and, um, it, you know, this was not a time to be talking politics. Um, you know, there was so much else she could have talked about than, uh, again, bringing politics into it when we're all trying to recover from the uh, arguments that we've had and so on. It was just, it was just perpetuating. I mean, I guess she felt this was her, this was her moment with so many people watching. You know, this was going to be getting more attention than, let's just say, a, a news if she was on a talk show or something. Yes. But um, but I, I think that that was a wrong choice, and I was disappointed in her. Um, I do want to mention one other thing. The Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture um, was, let's see, it was won by Aaron Taylor Johnson for Nocturnal Animals. I didn't see that movie, so I can't speak to his his performance, but... I was really glad, and I know that this was just his first time being nominated and all of that, and it wasn't really, it was kind of a long shot, but Simon Helberg for Florence Foster Jenkins, he did an amazing, amazing job in that movie. Um, He is better known as being on Big Bang Theory, and it was just amazing to see him come into a really difficult role. I'm glad that he was nominated, at least. I mean, that's a big deal, especially someone coming from television, you know, to in, a, in an ongoing TV show. Um, and he, he had to play the piano for this movie, and, um, and the part itself, even without the piano, would have been challenging enough. He did a really, uh, a really, he was, he was, comedic, I mean, well, you'd expect that with his being lightweight in the Big Bang Theory and all, but still, this was a different format, and he just, he just did a, an outstanding job. Um, uh, so I would say, you know, that's another reason why you should go see Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, okay, enough about the Golden Globes. Let me switch channels to get to talk about something else. Um, the I was quoted this week in um, an article in People magazine that's uh, entitled Forensic Experts Weigh in on the Mysterious Death of Mom Mich- Michelle O'Connell Ruled a Suicide. Now, you may not have heard about this case, although it has been on a number of shows um, such as Dateline. And um, the, the reason why this case is so fascinating is because, is because a big cover-up is happening. She, was, she died in 2010, and for all these years, the St. Augustine, Florida Sheriff's Department has been covering up the fact that it was one of their deputies, Jeremy Banks, who actually murdered her. Now, when I was being interviewed for this for People Magazine article, I was sent a bunch of information, like um, some video. I think it was the Dateline, or it was another television show that uh, examined this case. And 
there was no question from the information that I had from the TV show and particularly the 911 call that I was sent. Um, that 911 call really says it all. It, it, in the call, it's Jer- Jeremy Banks. Well, let me give you a little background. Jeremy Banks was dating Michelle O'Connell. They were dating for about a year. They were living together at this time. And he, um, he was being abusive. And, he, and she had told her family that, uh, that she was scared of him. He was being abusive. I mean, they, have, they had some idea about this. But she also hadn't said that she wanted to leave him until this day, this day that she suddenly died. Uh, this is just like O.J. and um, his wife and, and when, that, when that murder took place and also um, with Terry Schiavo and her husband when that murder, as I called it, took place, um, the injury that caused her to then go into this vegetative state uh, or, or coma or, you know, it's been called a number of different things. Um, but these men fit into the pattern of what I write about in my book uh, called the Prince of Darkness, which are men who are abusive. And when men, I mean, it is well known now that when men, uh, abusive men, who really are, are coming from a fear of abandonment, when they feel that their wife or their woman is, is really going to abandon them, like with Nicole, for example, it was that night that, that O.J. finally realized that, yes, indeed, there was no turning back. She wasn't going to keep giving him second chances and third and fourth and fifth, you know, five millionth chances, that she really, he saw a change in her. That was the night when she was killed. And it's because these men, it has to do with their childhood when... Um, it has to do with having been abandoned by their mother in their childhood. Um, and uh, like O.J., in O.J.'s case, his mother, uh, his parents were, were divorced, and his mother then had another baby, um, or not then, I, she, I guess she got pregnant before the divorce. But in any case, she ha- he was replaced at her breast by his next sibling before the age, before the sibling was one. And that was a sense, that was an abandonment. And then, when, when her, and then after that, when his parents were divorced, his mother had to go to work many hours a day to be able to support the family. So she was really not there. So um, Jeremy Banks, you know, Michelle had decided, she went to a concert with Jeremy and one of her brothers, and she had asked her brother to, if he would come back to their house, um, she was clearly afraid of being with Jeremy, and she had sent some texts during the concert. And the sheriffs are trying to say that those texts show that she, that she was going to kill herself. But indeed, those texts are much more um, illustrative of uh, her fear. I mean, given the whole history, putting them in, in context, it was much, they were much more illustrative of um, feeling that Jeremy was going to kill her that night because she had decided that that was the night she was going to finally leave him. So, let me see. They have... um, Let me find my quote here. Okay, so in this article, uh, I say... Well, it says, and while... 
Dr. Kara Lieberman, another noted forensic psychiatrist and frequent expert witness in legal cases, tells people she has questions about Banks' behavior in the initial 911 call in O'Connell's death made by Banks, who discovered her, who discovered her body. Investigators dismiss this as wild speculation. <laughs> Really, all my years of being a forensic psychiatrist and testifying in hundreds of cases, it is wild speculation. Okay, um, the reason why, I mean, I listened to that 911 call a gazillion times, and one of the ways that um, I was able to analyze his voice and analyze the, the conversation and know that he was just acting when he seemed so distraught, oh, I mean, I can't even do it, but, you know, he was crying to the 911 operator, and he wasn't really making much sense as far as, um, I mean, he was, he wasn't, well, I mean, I guess now, actually, it does kind of make sense, because he wasn't really giving her enough information early on for where they, he wanted the police or an ambulance to come. And now, of course, it makes perfect sense, because since then, I've learned that, in fact, Michelle was still breathing by the time the police, the sheriffs, did get there. And which means that, obviously, he wanted her to die. He is trained in CPR. Sheriffs and police are trained in CPR. Now, clearly, he would have seen that she was still breathing, so why didn't he do CPR? He's on the phone with the 911 operator a long time, and, during, and, and it would have could have taken a lot shorter to just give the operator the basic information, you know, to say that his girlfriend killed herself, right, shot herself, um, and to give the address, and because the operator wanted to know why isn't he giving her CPR. So, um, and the police, the sheriff, or at least there's one sheriff deputy who wanted to know that and who has spoken out, that when she got there and saw that Michelle was still breathing, she didn't understand why Jeremy wasn't giving her CPR, hadn't been for all this time. So, but one of the biggest clues on this 911 call was um, that Jeremy is talking in this, you know, screeching in this fake voice to show how distressed he is uh, to the operator. And then at one point, because he has this high-pitched voice, so at one point the operator says, ma'am, ma'am, you know, I, I need you to talk more slowly or something like that. And, and he, then all of a sudden he switches to his normal voice and he says, it's not ma'am, it's sir. <laughs> and then he goes back to screeching again. I mean, really? You know, if this was in a movie, <laughs> he would not be nominated for um, a, a Golden Globe Award, I can tell you. Uh, his acting for, you know, being distraught about his girlfriend supposedly having just shot herself was really bad. So um, I have been in touch with the family. I'm trying to help them. But um, there has, there has, you know, there every, every, they have, of course, been trying to get Jeremy charged with, with murder. And every which way that they have tried over these six years has not worked. And so finally they hired a, uh, well, there's a wonderful um, detective who's working on this named Clue, <laughs> great name for a detective, and he has uncovered many, many things that point to the fact that this was murder, that, the, that Jeremy Banks shot her. Um, and they also hired a private forensic pathologist, Dr. William Anderson, 
to perform, they, they exhumed her body, and he performed a post-exhumation autopsy of Michelle. And he discovered that she had a broken jaw, a broken lower jawbone that was never mentioned in the original medical examiner's report. And there were other um, injuries, too. The, the, let's see. Um, you know, the, the point, it obviously, um, and then, then, in fact, when she, when they, when she was uh, buried, when they had her body in the funeral home, they covered up, they had to, they made her darker uh, with makeup to cover, to cover up uh, presumably the ecchymoses, the black and blue marks from this broken jawbone. I mean, it is such a cover-up. And so, so anyhow, these new uh, pieces of evidence have been coming up and the family is still trying to get Jeremy to be charged. And it is going, it, it, you know, it's gone up to, to high levels, not just to this local sheriff's department, but it's even gone higher than that. And so far, they have refused to even convene a grand jury, which is really, I mean, that, that is pretty unheard of with um, the amount of evidence that, that, they, that they already have been given. So um, it's, really, it's really very uh, disheartening to see that these kinds of things actually do go on in America, that, um, that cover-ups, I mean, you know, it's not like I'm saying something, uh, I mean, I'm not as naive as to think that cover-ups don't exist, but here, it, what's, which was really kind of surprising, is that given the amount of attention these various television shows, now People Magazine, it's been in the news certainly a lot before. Um, it's kind of amazing that the people who have the ability to call for a grand jury are still insisting that they, still refusing to do so. Because now that they have so much attention on them and that anybody who watches these shows uh, or, or even who reads this article uh, you know, the evidence is really very convincing. And so these people, you would think they'd be feeling enough pressure to change their mind and, um, and call for a grand jury at least and then take their chances as to what happens after that. So it is just very disheartening that it's, it's not even just that, it's not the fact that things get covered over. Yes, that's awful. But even to the point of being covered over when there is still all this national attention, that's just chilling. Well, let's see. Um, I think we should go to a, we're almost at the point of a commercial right now. I think we should go there because when we come back, I will um, talk to you about another, well, I don't know if it's a cover-up yet. I mean, so far it is actually, I guess, because no one's been coming forward. But um, I want to talk about the, the tragic terrorist attack at the Fort Lauderdale Airport, an airport that I've been at, by the way, um, and, and to talk about the tragic um, injustice that happened to the man who perpetrated this terrorist attack. Now, I know it may seem strange for me to be talking about an injustice to a terrorist, but this is a man who was mentally ill, and who is mentally ill, and who never got the proper treatment, 
and it sh- it could well it should have been preventable because he did see people um, in you know mental health practitioners, and he was in a hospital, and yet he slipped through the through the cracks both of the FBI and the mental health system, and then and was allowed to um, to perpetrate this horrendous attack that he did last Friday um, in Florida. And, you know, we've seen examples of people slipping through the cracks before. Uh, Omar Mateen, for example, who perpetrated the Orlando nightclub attack, he had been checked out by the FBI or the CIA or somebody, and he was, you know, they closed his case. They decided he wasn't a threat after all. And um, then we just recently had the Berlin truck driver who had been under, um, well, he, was, he came from Tunisia and he was, uh, there was a warrant <laughs> out for his arrest in Tunisia. He was, he was um, accused, charged with crimes in Tunisia. They were looking for him. He went to Germany. He was uh, an immigrant and he, you know, he came in with a flood of immigrants to Germany not being vetted. And he, but he was under uh, investigation by the German authorities for potential terrorist leanings. And then they closed their case. They wanted to deport him, actually. But Tunisia kept saying uh, uh, until the last day, until the day when he perpetrated the attack, that's when they finally suddenly discovered his passport and, and decided, oh, yes, indeed, he was a Tunisian citizen. I mean... <laughs> You know, they had refused when they, the German, German government had tried earlier to uh, deport him back to Tunisia, and the Tunisia, Tunisian government kept stalling um, because they didn't want him back. He was a criminal there, and so they were trying to avoid having him sent back. They didn't need him. They didn't, didn't want more of people like him there. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are going on in Europe these days, um, where it is, it is just, it is just awful that um, that, and it is just a, it's just a warning sign for America. When we when we come back, I will talk more about this. Um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today, well, I should say ranting with you today, at you... (laughs) With you, I hope with you. I hope you're seeing some of the points that I'm making. Or if I'm getting you angry, that's okay. I'm getting you to think about these things. Um, of course, I'd rather that you believe what I, <laughs> that you, you know, come, come to my side. But um, I was talking about, I started talking about the Fort Lauderdale Airport gunman. His name is Esteban Santiago. Um, he, as you presumably know, uh, last Friday went to, got on, a plane from Anchorage, Alaska, and landed in Fort Lauderdale, and that was his plan. He came to the airport purposely to perpetrate a terrorist attack. And he killed five people. I mean, so far, the death toll is five, but there are several injured, so the death toll may rise. Um, But he terrorized the airport for hours. Uh, And because even, you know, after they eventually caught him, they, there was, for some reason, they believed there was a second gunman and they went running over to a garage. I watched this thing live, um, which is so, you know, it's so, I mean, nowadays, whenever there are terrorist attacks, well, depending upon where it is, of course, but um, when there are things of note going on, whether it's a terrorist attack or, or Times Square at New Year's Eve, we get to see these things live. I mean, not just on television, but on the Internet, on our smartphones. We're all connected instantaneously more than ever before. And it's nice to be connected instantaneously when it's to celebrate New Year's Eve. But um, watching the tragedies, terrorist attacks notably, unfold, um, I, I can be dangerous to your mental health if you, if you continue to watch it over a long period of time. And the thing is, it is, I mean, I have to admit that I watched it over a long period of time. Of course, you know, that's my, I am the terrorist therapist. And I was, I, I actually, had, the only reason why I stopped was because I was um, doing a, a podcast. I, I had a time set that I was supposed to record a podcast and so I had to stop watching. But, but continued viewing of, of terrorist attacks can be dangerous to your mental health because it is very stressful. And you can get a form of PTSD just from watching. But the, the thing is that it is so um, riveting because you're watching in real time. I mean, it's not the same thing as when you watch the news later on and they have snippets from, let's just say, you know, even talking about this attack, yes, there were lots of snippets on the news, and yes, some stations went to it live, but, um, but you know, when you can sit there on the Internet and watch the whole thing live for hours, that really, really can, have, can be very, very stressful, but it is also just so gripping because, because it is real time and because you don't know if there's a second terrorist. Or I was thinking, actually, when they were going into the uh, garage and they were telling people to get away and, you know, they kept moving all the people on the tarmac from one place to the other. And, and I kept thinking about all the people um, who couldn't run that quickly. I mean, what about people? There was some person in a, in a wheelchair. Um, there were uh, people with kids. 
I mean, not everyone is able to sprint across the tarmac when there's a terrorist attack at an airport. So I just kept worrying about the people left behind, and everybody had to leave their their things behind. I mean, that is what you have to do. Um, If you're ever at a place where there's an active shooter, you need to first run, hide, fight. And um, so, yes, running, you know, the only time that you shouldn't run is if the terrorist or the shooter is in between you and the nearest exit. And that, at that point, you have to try to hide. Um, but, and you know, now it, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, uh, it's really upsetting, worrying, upsetting, that these days there have been more and more reports of active shooters shooting people on the ground. I mean, it used to be that a, that a um, advice would be um, to just drop to the ground and pretend that you're dead. And yes, that can sometimes be effective, but we've been hearing about more and more shooters who are, apparently they got that memo, and they are shooting people on the ground, too. Uh, even people that they've already shot, they're shot, shooting them again to make sure they're dead, um, because, and not just pretending that they're dead. Now, something that's interesting that just came out was that this terrorist um, actually had planned originally to go to New York on New Year's Eve. And they haven't said yet definitively that it was to go to Times Square. But certainly, why would you go to New York on on New Year's Eve? Um, If not Times Square, then certainly there were lots of people at other places downtown in Manhattan and so on. I mean, it's it's Candyland for a terrorist. I mean, you know, it's like being in a candy store for a terrorist. But what's, what pisses me off, I'll just say it, pisses me off, it makes me really angry, is that this shooter um, had walked in to an FBI office in, um, in Anchorage in November telling them that, he, um, that the government was forcing him to watch Islamic State videos. Now... And they, so what they did was they called the local police and they had them bring him to a um, facility. Now, I don't know, the, t- the dates of all these things are kind of, they're reported differently and, and they're, they're, different dates are given in different reports as to when he was hospitalized for two weeks and then I think this most recent time he was only hospitalized for four days and it's probably, um, you know, there's a 72-hour hold rule, presumably, I guess maybe that's in Anchorage too, that, um, that if someone is a danger to themselves or others, you can involuntarily hospitalize them for 72 hours. But then they let him go. And um, let me just, the, let's see, they said the CIA was forcing him to watch Islamic State propaganda videos to control his mind. Now, if he walked, I, I did my training at NYU Bellevue, which is the best psychiatric hospital and the best training in the world. And um, as part of the training, we would have to spend countless, <laughs> countless for years, nights uh, in the emergency room at Bellevue. Now, just imagine what that might be like, being in the emergency, being in charge, being, well, as a resident, as a psychiatric resident, but, but you're being on the front lines, I should say. And yes, in a sense, you are in charge because you're the one who decides whether the person gets admitted or not. Um, so imagine what that's, if someone, if he would have walked into the emergency room in Bellevue 
and said, the CIA is, wa- is, is forcing me to watch Islamic State videos and, to control my mind. First of all, that's a, a pathognomonic sign of schizophrenia. Now, he, was a, he, he has a history. He's been in Iraq, and he's, been, he's, he's dedicated service. Um, you know, he, he joined the military, and he spent time in Iraq, and his relatives say that it was when he came back um, from the war that he had changed. He was totally different, and they're saying that it was because he watched two of his um, friends there get blown up by a, an, an explosive device, and that that changed him. And he was never the same after that. Now, um, he, he was first. He was in the Puerto Rico Army National Guard in 2007. He was deployed to Iraq in April 2010 as a combat engineer and returned to the U.S. in early 2011. In November 2014, after moving to Alaska, he joined the Alaska National Guard. Now, um, and then he was discharged this past August from the Alaska National Guard for unsatisfactory performance. Now, this is the, the t- same time that he was telling his brother that he was hearing voices and the CIA were, were controlling his mind and all of that. Now, if someone would have walked into the Bellevue Emergency Room and told me these things, um, here, there's other descriptions. Voices were telling him to, this, yes, in addition to having to, being told, in, in addition to telling people, his telling people, Esteban's telling people, the CIA or the FBI and mental health practitioners, that the CIA was making him watch ISIS videos uh, and controlling his mind, he said voices were telling him to fight for ISIS. Uh, watch ISIS videos. Wait a minute. Telling him to fight for ISIS, he also believed he was being controlled by the CIA to watch ISIS videos. Okay. Now, if someone came in and told me they were hearing voices telling him to fight for ISIS, duh, and the CIA was making him watch these ISIS videos controlling his mind, I mean, how much clearer do you have to be that this guy is, a, is an accident waiting to happen, a terrorist attack waiting to happen? But they missed it, and they discharged him, and he got on a plane, and he went to Fort Lauderdale, and he shot people. I mean, this is an outrage. This is just as outrageous, or more outrageous, really, <coughs> than what I was telling you about uh, with the deputy, the murder being covered over, because this is uh, attacking far more people. I mean, they're, all, they're both bad. But, um, but I guess it bothers me more, because I know how, what that means, how incompetent the... I certainly can speak for the mental health professionals, how incompetent they were, to have let him slip through the cracks. I mean, the, the FBI and the CIA, that's in a different way, but they were probably depending upon the mental health professionals to tell him just how serious this guy was. And they didn't really realize just how, what a danger he was. I mean, because when you say that the, the CIA is controlling your mind, that's a way, by making you watch these ISIS videos, what that's saying is, it's not me who's going to be committing a terrorist attack. It's because the, uh, the CIA made me watch these ISIS videos. And it's not me who's con- going to commit a terrorist attack. It's the voices in my head who are telling me to commit the terrorist attack. I mean, it is plain as day or should have been 
these are signs of schizophrenia. And what probably happened, I mean, he's 26 years old, which is people usually uh, have their first schizophrenic psychotic break from 18 to their early to mid-20s. So this is prime time for his schizophrenia to come out. And I have a feeling if one searched in his relatives, there would be a genetic history of schizophrenia. But it was probably the being, it's not, in other words, PTSD um, probably triggered, or his, I should say his experiences in the military triggered the schizophrenia to manifest itself. And yes, he may well have PTSD on top of this, but the, the mind control and the voices are typical um, pathognomonic signs of schizophrenia. So, yes, being in the military for all those years, uh, being on our side, um, but being, you know, seeing the, the explosive de- device explode, seeing his friends killed, be, the stress of being there altogether, even without that, um, was enough to push him into a schizophrenic, psychotic episode. And he uh, manifested that by, by his terrorist attack in Florida. I mean, we need to have, bottom line, we need to have psychiatrists be more aware and not in denial of terrorism and be more on the lookout for people who are psychotic and who mention anything related to ISIS terrorism or (laughs) shooting up people, you know, the, the words we've come to associate with terrorism. There needs to be a higher alert and there needs to be a law that, ter- that psychiatrists have to uh, notify the FBI or the CIA when they come across somebody like that so that they can go into a full investigation. All right, you can tell what I think about that. <laughs> and I, I am going to be trying to make something happen to, uh, to get psychiatrists to be more aware of that. So thank you for listening. You've been, thank you for listening to me rant. Um, I hope you'll talk to some people about some of these issues. And uh, you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 